No need for arduous seeking. All you have to do is follow the clues. You start to see this as a simulation, as a type of computerized AI manufactured reality. We are playing like putty into the hands of the manipulators who are just setting us at war with each other. With your best shot, higher side chatters from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood, and if you connect a few dots through the history of the eugenics movement, the foundations of the compulsory school system, experimentations of the MK Ultra era, and the general operations of the CIA, including their involvement in the arts and entertainment, it's easier to see how the recurring refinement of the many arms of the social engineering machine has brought us to a place today where every news story plays out like a scripted drama. New orders and mandates are generally obeyed without question, and any organized rebellion or artistic inspiration has been carefully designed to unironically serve the big machine. The anti-establishment artists of the past and their blue-haired rebellious youth fans are now climate change activists and promoters of ESG agendas. Counterculture has become corporate culture, and those looking for any ideological true north in the arts are probably feeling quite lonely and uninspired. Today, the dial has been turned up to 11 in a total cultural capture from people who have been tinkering under the hood of mind control and mass consciousness for a long time. And few know the road that got us here better than today's guest, John Patash. John is a truly great journalist and author. His first book, The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders, came out in 2007. And he followed it up with an even more explosive and all-encompassing masterwork, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. The CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists, which really should be required reading, if you ask me. Both of these books have been turned into documentary films as well, and when combined with his latest work, the film Shots, Eugenics to Pandemics, you have a well-researched roadmap of the true history and manipulation of everything going back over a century. So brace yourself and let's get into it. The assassinated artist, storyteller, CIA operations author, and deep diving dot connector, John, welcome to the higher side. Thanks for having me on, Greg. Yeah, this is really an honor. I know a lot of people who respect your work, but I still think there's a ton of folks out there that have yet to be introduced, and that's my favorite thing to do. Just to read a little from the description of your book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, it says... This book meticulously details how a group of opium-trafficking families came to form an American oligarchy and eventually achieved global dominance. They directed the CIA in operations such as MKUltra, pushing LSD and other drugs on leftist leaders and left-leaning populations at home and abroad. Evidence supports that this oligarchy further led the United States into its longest-running wars in the ideal areas for opium crops, 
while also massively funding wars in areas of coca plant abundance for cocaine production under the guise of a war on drugs that is actually the use of drugs as a war on us. And that's what's so unique about your work. When a lot of people talk about the elite families of America and the robber baron class, they start with the Rockefellers and Standard Oil or the Rothschilds and fractional reserve banking, but they're missing this entire drug running aspect until it gets brought up in much more recent decades. But this really is foundational to the story. Talk to us about some of this history that goes back even before the 1800s. Yeah, so it basically started with the British East India Company and their trafficking, you know, basically just dealing with opium. And they were dealing with opium in their colonization of India. And in India, they were getting all kinds of cheap opium through the enslavement of India. So the best opium fields were, or poppy fields, tended to be around the same mountain range, the Himalayan mountain range running from you know, Afghanistan basically to the Vietnam area. And it ran through India. And so there was lots of poppies growing best all up that corridor, but particularly growing best at each end of the mountain range, what they call the golden crescent of poppy fields around Afghanistan. And the Golden Triangle of poppy fields, you know, around the Vietnam area, and so it's no coincidence, of course, again, that the longest wars in U.S. history were in those two regions, and so the most money was made off of those regions, and you know, this started in the 1600s, but it was really dominated by the British East India Company with American wealthy folks, wealthy families joining in. The Russells were probably the biggest family, and the Russells happened to be founders of Yale University, and the Pierponts were involved. Those families were intermarried. The families that founded Columbia University, the Lowe's, the Cabots that founded Harvard were all involved, and they were all very close. And they were considered the first oligarchs, really, of America. Now, they, of course, Pierponts spawned John Pierpont Morgan, who, you know, the Morgan Bank, J.P. Morgan Bank joined with the Rockefellers Chase Bank, and now it's called J.P. Morgan Chase, and it's the largest bank in the world. So these are some of the wealthiest folks in the world that a lot of their money really stemmed from this opium trading back then. It led up to the opium wars against China because China tried to ban opium trading in their country because they saw what it was doing to their people. And it was basically used to sedate and oppress their people. And so they tried to fight it and they lost the wars to ban it, and the whole country got taken over by European powers after that. And so these kind of opium wars, I argue, then you know, led to the uh, fighting over this situation and the use of opium to sedate, divide, and oppress the masses in the United States and other countries thereafter. Yeah, that is a great summary. And I want to drill down a little more on this Ivy League aspect because this was completely new to me. But yes, you note that the Russell family rose to the top of the opium trade and intermarried with the other elite families, such as the Cabots and the Pierponts. Pierpont, as you said, is the P in J.P. Morgan. And the Russells put much of their wealth into Ivy League colleges and formed groups like Skull and Bones in 1833, which gave members today's equivalent of 200K each on graduation. I didn't know that about Skull and Bones, that they actually 
gave their graduates money. I mean, that's how a lot of the elite say they're self-made, but really they have this backstop of tons of cash. And Skull and Bones at Yale was built and still today is supported by the Russell Trust. So all that money is in a trust that is fueling this. You also note that Columbia University has the low library dedicated to an opium trader. Princeton's biggest initial benefactor was John Green, who was one of these opium dealers. And I just found this really fascinating because we hear about Rockefeller's investment in schooling for the masses and crafting the allopathic only medical education. But all the elite universities do come through this opium money pipeline. It touches all of them, it seems. Yeah, it really does. And it's a huge corrupt business. And even up to today, they found that J.P. Morgan-owned ships, you know, tankers, were caught with tons of cocaine coming from, you know, South America. So this stuff is still going on today, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, all this drug trafficking. Yes. And so the next big stop on this path is probably talking about the CIA. I think this audience is well aware of CIA drug running, but it's really eye-opening to put it in the wider continuum and we can fold in their famous MK Ultra research, but also the lesser known fact that the CIA, quote, spent vast amounts of money on foundations that funded all the major artists for several decades after its inception in 1947 in an attempt to control how Americans thought and acted. What would you say to drill that home for people who might not see it? Yeah, no, that's a really important point, And we're going to go deep into that in a moment. I just do want to say that you brought up the Russell Trust. The Russell Trust also started the eugenics movement, and the eugenics movement was a genocidal movement in the United States in the early 1900s, and they used the eugenics record office at Cold Spring Harbor, and that same Cold Spring Harbor, they were also had started MKUltra activities. So these MKUltra activities and these CIA activities in trying to control artists through foundations, funding certain artists that did their bidding, and not helping artists that were going against what they wanted and actually taking the passport away from artists that were fighting for black liberation and black equal rights, such as Paul Robeson, the incredible singer. He was considered the best singer in the world. He had graduated from Columbia Law School. He was an actor. He was a brilliant man. He could speak 20 languages. They um, took away his passport at one point. They did the same thing to Richard Wright, the first great best-selling black novelist with Paul Robeson. They ended up dosing his drink when he was in Russia, and they dosed him a number of times, made him think like he was going insane. They dosed it with LSD. And when his adult son, Paul Robeson Jr., came over to see what was happening with him, they dosed him also. And they either dosed it with LSD or BZ. They're not sure which, you know, because BZ is a super psychedelic, but LSD, if you put a lot of it in there, it can be an incredible experience, a horrible experience too especially when you don't know what's going in you. And so they basically had all these foundations and they had so many people in the industry that they were having, in effect, control over a huge amount of the arts, you know, whether it be writing, music, painting, etc. Hmm. Right. And I think as eye-opening as this is broadly, there are some examples we can look at in specific artists that 
were very big in the 60s and even promoting LSD culture. The Beatles would be a great example. Talk to us about how LSD entered the Beatles' lives and how it wasn't exactly organic. Yeah, so what happened was it was about 1965, in January of 1965, the assistant director of MK Ultra, a guy named Robert Lashbrook, a CIA agent named Robert Lashbrook, went to London with loads, and this is according to Ernest Hemingway's editor, A.E. Hotchner, in his book called Blown Away about the Rolling Stones in the 1960s and the whole scene in Britain. And so he said that Robert Lashville came over to London with loads of LSD, loads of agents, and loads of money, and it directed his agents to get LSD in as many musicians' hands as possible. So we don't know who all those agents were, but obviously a number of them were undercover. So you got John Lennon and George Harrison going with their partners to a dinner with George Harrison's dentist. And the dentist has his girlfriend there. And the dentist proceeds to put LSD in their coffees without their knowledge, without George Harrison and John Lennon's knowledge. When John Lennon found out about it, he was furious. He was like, what the hell did you do to me? And George Harrison said, what's LSD? Never heard of it before because by that time, even in Britain, they just didn't really know about it. It was only in the United States that it was getting more popular. And so they proceeded to you know, go on with their night, trying to go see a friend's band. But it was just a bizarre thing for a dentist to risk himself professionally to do something like that against wealthy musicians and not fear being sued. And he obviously had legal immunity because he was connected to powerful people to do something like that. And so... A similar thing happened with Mick Jagger, an undercover agent. Now, this came out in London's Daily Mail, which is the daily newspaper, one of the two top newspapers in London. And the Daily Mail said that a guy named, I forget his full name right now, but this undercover agent basically came to a party, was considered the acid king, and he convinced Mick Jagger to try LSD for the first time in 1967 because Mick Jagger was more of a holdout. Some of the other Rolling Stones had tried acid before, but Mick Jagger hadn't. And they finally convinced, convinced him to have some tea with LSD in it. And he was tripping. Then the police came in and arrested everyone except this one undercover agent who had a huge briefcase full of all kinds of different drugs. And so after Mick Jagger did not want to promote acid, they arrested him and ended up promoting acid inadvertently by saying he was tripping and he was arrested and they were doing you know acid and all that stuff. And that's basically the way they manipulate these musicians into inadvertently promoting these drugs to the masses. And I argue that they did that because studies have shown that acid can hurt our best thinking and hurt our best abilities. It just has a negative effect, whether it's the acid itself or it's the rat poison strychnine that they cut acid with. Mm. Yeah, strychnines, if you look at the textbooks on acid, strychnine is often cut into the acid. And, you know, just like baby powder might be found in cocaine. And basically, it's just hurting our brains and not, you know, having us be our best selves. And when these anti-war activists were doing all their anti-racist, you know, pro-civil rights, anti-war organizing in the 60s, they had to be at the top of their game because the forces were so powerful against them. In the South, of course, is where the KKK and the FBI actually working with the KKK, believe it or not, even though, you know, Hollywood pretends like the FBI was fighting against the KKK. And in the uh, North, it was just, you know, 
the, the anti-war movement in the West and around Berkeley and all the anti-war movement was really growing in a big way as Vietnam War was growing and young people were getting sent off to be killed in, in Vietnam. These were just some of the tactics used for sure. And they used it against John Lennon. They used it against, as I say, the Rolling Stones. But they also used it against American musicians. But in America, there was even a little bit more control and manipulation and insertion, I argue. And Dave McGowan wrote a great book about that called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, about covert ops in Laurel Canyon. And he showed evidence that a bunch of these stars, these instant stars, like the Mamas and the Papas, Crosby, Stills and Nash, and people like that, all had you know intimate connections with military intelligence along with the wealthiest families. For example, David Crosby came from the Van Cortland Rensselaer family. And if you know of Van Cortland Park in New York, it's a thousand acre park. And there's a Van Cortland Expressway in New York City named for the Van Cortland family. So these are some of the ways that the oligarchs got their own people as instant stars to manipulate these scenes. And Rockefeller's wife, one of the Rockefeller's wives had a cousin who was a major force, the guy in Vito Palikas in Laurel Canyon was a major force in shaping and manipulating musicians in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Laurel Canyon chapter of this story is pretty wild. And even George Harrison and John Lennon said that after they were spiked, they didn't touch LSD for a long time. But when they arrived to the Laurel Canyon scene, it was Crosby of Crosby, Stills and Nash and the Birds that sort of or a party at his house where they got back into it because they said the social pressure was just so great. And David Crosby, of course, he's one of these guys connected to one of the elite families. And yeah, it's right in the middle of the civil rights era and the Vietnam War. And it's funny that we're on the brink of uh, another major war, but we have no artists that are really anti-war these days. But also it was Acid King David Schneiderman, who was the one who kind of got Mick Jagger involved in LSD. And apparently he worked undercover for the FBI and MI5. And it's a British version of FBI, yeah. Right. And when he was arrested... Basically, it seems like he was entrapped because the police came and arrested Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, but not Schneiderman. And then they used that against the Rolling Stones. Anytime they maybe started to speak out about things, it's like, look, just shut up and play the music. Don't have any kind of opinions about anything. And I just find that whole thing really interesting. Another thread of the Laurel Canyon era that I didn't know much about until your book was Lookout Mountain Laboratory. Talk to us about this a bit, because they produced a staggering 19,000 classified movies and film projects with top actors, directors, and producers who all signed NDAs. So this is no small operation. Yeah, it's incredible what came out of there. And it's incredible how many U.S. intelligence agents were working in Laurel Canyon. It's not a big place in, in the Los Angeles you know, metropolitan area. But there was all these people working at Lowell Canyon, and we don't even know, you know, the confidentiality agreements that, you know, they couldn't talk about what they were working on, but it could have been a number of our propaganda Hollywood films that we think are just independent films, but actually coming out of this military installation. It's really an Air Force film studio, but you know, it was a state-of-the-art studio that had incredible 
technical equipment to create these incredible movies and incredible effects and all. And the top directors were working there. Top actors were working there. And this is part of that scene where you've got other people, you know, having sex and drug parties to try to get actors using drugs for the first time, introduce the actors, get them hooked, get musicians hooked, and to lure so many people into the drug world and hurt their minds, sadly. And at the same time, a number of actors were also trying to get involved in, you know, a lot of activism. Actors like Donald Sutherland, Marlon Brando, Gene Seberg, they were all supporters of the Black Panthers. They even called themselves the White Panthers in support of the Black Panthers. They also were supporters of the Peace and Freedom political party, which was, of course, an anti-war party. And so they were doing major work, and they were very influential, and this was a counter to that. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the drugs in general, because this is an area where there might be some pushback, and even my younger self would probably push back, and I really wasn't (laughs) There you go. I was going to ask, but I really wasn't attracted to this perspective because to me, some of these drugs, marijuana in particular, maybe mushrooms as well. Obviously, these are things that do grow in the earth, but they got me to question reality, to think deeper about things, to seek a greater fulfillment from life. I found them to be very useful. Of course, there are also casualties of all that that I know in my life who didn't know when to put it down and went down a a darker path. And I really don't have a lot of LSD experience. A lot of people say mushrooms and LSD are very similar, but there is the important distinction that one is made in a lab and one does grow in the earth. So I don't know. I think maybe their effects might be overly simplified and associated when they shouldn't. But what would you say to people who think that a lot of drugs and compounds like this and entheogens actually served them well and don't see how this would be some kind of operation to derail movements and wreck brains? Yeah, I think there's a major distinction between psychedelic mushrooms and acid because acid, it was created by the CIA. It was the top tool of the CIA. And I show that in my book and film, and I show the studies about acid and the problems it causes. Mushrooms, you know, from both the studies, from personal experience, from other things, it just doesn't have the same effect. Yeah, they're both psychedelics, but different effects, different effects on the brain, different long-term effects. And I'm neutral about drugs, you know, about drug legalization. I'm basically neutral. I really just don't have a strong enough opinion to say, but people can do any drugs they want. The problem is when the tyrannical forces are rolling over us right now and everyone's getting stoned and not using their you know, mind in the sharpest way, it's going to be hard to work against those tyrannical forces. We have to be at our sharpest to you know, be creative and find ways to stop these forces from taking over our lives like they are right now and getting information out and putting products out that show that information in the best way and you know whether it be a humorous way or you know just the most creative way to get that information out there it's important now MDMA or ecstasy or you know it's in molly these days that's causing brain damage i have four studies that show that acid causes brain damage and again i can't be totally certain whether it's acid itself or what it's cut with with like strychnine and stuff 
you know, rat poison. So these are definitely problems, dangerous problems. Now, cocaine and heroin, of course, can cause physiological dependence and obviously cause major problems in life. You know, it doesn't hurt the brain necessarily as much as the psychedelics that I talked about, you know, the acid and the MDMA, but it can hurt your life, obviously, when you develop an addiction. Cocaine can be a really intense psychological addiction. We can be a psychological addiction. And so when you're trying to work full-time jobs to support yourself, it's really hard to have time for activism when you're partying a lot. And so that's you know the major issue, but it's an important issue. And it's great if someone feels like, okay, gang stone, you know, had them awaken. It didn't really awaken me from anything, but it, you know, was fun for a while for sure. But it definitely diverted me. You know, I almost dropped out of high school or just, you know, failed out of high school just because I just didn't feel like taking any books home ever. You know, and then in college when I slowly weaned myself off of the weed, I uh, you know, could take it more seriously and do much better work, of course. And the shrooms, you know, they were fun for the moment. They seemed like they were mind opening in some ways, but really I was opening my mind in ways without the shrooms. And the acid was damaging. The acid definitely caused damage and just made everything a little harder mentally. But the important thing is that, you know, we don't have the money and other resources that the oligarchs, the wealthiest families have. So we just have to use our wits to defeat them and to kind of convince people about seeing things a different way than the ways that their huge amounts of propaganda try to get us to see. Mm -hmm. And some of the CIA documents just show their tactics of making people act in ways they think is in their best interest, but is really in the interest of the oligarchs. And that's why they can just convince us that locking ourselves down for months and months at a time is good for us and healthier, mm -hmm. you know, and doing other things in a tyrannical way is actually healthy when actually, you know, impoverished much of the world when there was these huge lockdowns it closed thousands and thousands of businesses permanently around the country and around the world and so this is some of the tyranny that we have to work against absolutely those are really fair points and i was actually thinking about this in terms of like a a tough mutter or some kind of relay race with obstacles in it. If you think from the elite perspective that you have all these masses of people trying to make it economically and they're all in this race, you can set up obstacles like some of these compounds and some people will go right through them, no big deal, and they're still on the race. But a lot of people will be tripped up by every single new obstacle on their way to that finish line. And you could even say some people would propel themselves forward with the momentum of some of these obstacles, but it's gonna be a minority and the majority of people will probably get swallowed up by them and never reach that finish line. And I think that's kind of a good analogy for the way the elite think about the masses and the trajectory of a life and trying to climb the economic ladder. And when you look at the templates to a lot of these different artists that you lay out in the book, it's very clear that they're using a playbook against so many artists and activists. It's really outspoken artists or ones who are inspiring movements to be anti-war or pro-equality. And Hendrix is a good example because Hendrix also touches up against the Black Panthers, which are obviously a huge part of your work. But talk to us about the co-opting of Jimi Hendrix, his manager, Mike Jeffrey, and the alternative take on his death. Yeah, so Jimi Hendrix couldn't get famous in the United States. He just, there was too much racism to allow him to 
turn into this great independent artist. So he went to England where these top stars who saw him instantly recognized his, you know, musical genius, his guitar playing genius. So he first made it big in England and he suddenly got, you know, huge amounts of fame and got asked to play all over the country, but he didn't know how to handle it all right away. So a guy named Mike Jeffrey inserted himself into Jimi Hendrix's life and career and said, I'll take care of this for you. I have experience with all this. And Mike Jeffrey turned out to be a former MI6 intelligence agent. That's military intelligence six. It's the British version of the CIA. So Mike Jeffrey proceeded to mess with Jimi Hendrix's career. He control his career, manipulate him. Jimi Hendrix started doing acid and other drugs and inadvertently promoted them before getting away from them, according to his fiance Monica Danneman in her book and in some major biographies of Jimi Hendrix, they said he was getting away from all major drugs. He had just, you know, dabbled in different drugs and, and then was getting away from them. But Mike Jeffrey did all kinds of things to control and manipulate him. He had a mafia kidnap him and then pretended he had bigger mafia to free him because Jimi Hendrix was trying to fire Mike Jeffries within a few years. Just he couldn't get away from it. He was scared to break the contract. So Jimi Hendrix said that he was doing a benefit concert for the anti-war movement. And Mike Jeffrey spiked his drink with a super amount of LSD, which really hurt his guitar playing. Mike Jeffrey planted cocaine on him and he, when he was in an airport and got him arrested. And so these are some of the things that were happening. Meanwhile, after Martin Luther King's assassination, Jimi Hendrix started getting really political and said in interviews, you got to support your Black Panthers. He dedicated his last album to the Black Panthers. And he finally fired Mike Jeffries. And within 48 hours of firing Mike Jeffries, Jimi Hendrix was dead. And two people said that Mike Jeffries had admitted to them when he was drunk that he had Jimi Hendrix killed. Now, 48 hours after firing him, and how do you get someone killed? You have an assassination team at your disposal. You know, only intelligence has that. And so I show all the evidence that Mike Jeffries was continuing to work for military intelligence undercover when he was, you know, working as a manager for Jimi Hendrix. Mm, yeah, that's a, a great breakdown of the Hendrix story. Obviously, he was smeared heavily in the media. Everyone knows the story that he choked on his own vomit and well just another case of a rock star partier drug addict and no that's an assassination from someone connected to intelligence it's crazy and because we talked about the beatles let's also fold in john lennon because he was assassinated the same year i think by mark david chapman probably under some kind of mk ultra influence people tend to think the story's a little shaky there but Fill us in on some of those details. Yeah, so John Lennon was very manipulated by people around him, sadly enough. First, he was trying to get away from acid. He stopped taking it for two years. He said in an interview with Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone magazine, and he thought he was finally getting his mind back after feel like he destroyed his mind with acid, with LSD. And so after two years, though, this publicist next to him and Yoko Ono, and others convinced him to go back to taking acid again. And when he started taking acid again, though, he felt like he was getting so anxious before concerts, he was throwing up for hours before he would go on stage. So acid was really messing him up. But nonetheless, he was trying to do good anti-war work. He was allowed to be the 
guest host of, I think it was the Merv Griffin show. He invited one different Black Panthers like Bobby Seale in there to interview him. So he was a really serious activist, John Lennon, but he went into seclusion for a while. As he was putting out some albums, but he says he was too anxious to do concerts. But he went in seclusion for a while to raise his son. And then when he came back with two studio albums that were just coming out, by that time, of course, he was highly monitored by U.S. intelligence. And FBI, of course, were highly monitoring Jimi Hendrix, too, according to the FBI file on Jimi Hendrix. But John Lennon, there was loads of U.S. intelligence documents showing how CIA and the FBI were monitoring John Lennon. And of course, they tried to get him deported. And he was just within a month or so of getting his U.S. citizenship because he had successfully fought the deportation. And Mark David Chapman was trained. First, he was sent into a hospital where, you know, Mark David Chapman had done a number of different drugs as a teenager. Someone, you know, whatever, he'd done a number of different drugs. He was sent to a hospital where they were known to have used MKUltra techniques on different patients there. Mark David Chapman suddenly was sent to different parts of the world. You know, he was a poor guy. He was working as a janitor somewhere and suddenly he had money to be able to travel around the world. And a veteran journalist named Fenton Bressler from England wrote the book, Who Killed John Lennon? And just documented the path of Mark David Chapman being what he would call bloodied in Lebanon. So he was sent to Lebanon to expose him to violence, to make it easier for him to enact violence when under hypnosis, you know, in a drugged out state. And Chapman was then trained in marksmanship by Atlanta police officers. And I showed loads of evidence that U.S. intelligence always works with local police to help them carry out certain operations, you know, certain members of police intelligence both work for you know police intelligence locally as well as they can also overlap the FBI and they can even overlap the CIA. And so here was this Atlanta police officer not only training him in marksmanship, but then giving him the special police hollow point bullets with which he used to kill John Lennon. And so Mark David Chapman ends up, you know, at the spot where he successfully, you know, shoots at and kills John Lennon. Now the other major point about this, though, is that the doorman at the Dakota at John Lennon's apartment house that night was a CIA professional hitman. He had been part of the anti-Cuba squad, and his name was Jose Sanjanis Perdomo. And he gets that job as the doorman. It's just several months before the murder of John Lennon. And it's believed, and police originally thought that he was the shooter. But, you know, after it was probably quashed by U.S. intelligence, they just arrested Mark David Chapman and tried him. But there was a lot of evidence that there was two shooters, and basically Perdomo was the, at least the backup shooter, if not the murderer of John Lennon in aiding that murder of John Lennon. And John Lennon was getting very activist at that time. He had already planned to be at the front of a Teamsters march, which was an important Teamsters march at the time on the West Coast. And so he was doing a lot of activist things again, along with being famous again with his two albums coming out at that time, which, of course, topped the music charts. Yeah, that's another excellent breakdown, hitting all the points I had on my notes here. But this chapter of history does get talked about a fair amount, where I think your book is even more unique as you bring it forward even further still to uh, a good example would be Kurt Cobain. 
So you go really deep into Kurt Cobain and the surrounding context that opium production was high for the drug runners and they needed an artist that could inadvertently glorify heroin use. Cobain had a stomach issue that caused him a lot of chronic pain. And this is where Courtney Love kind of comes in. But give us some details about her because we're citing examples of intelligence agents and assets being introduced into artists' lives. And her background sort of fits that mold, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, she is just a biz- has a bizarre background. In different biographies, her mother's biography and different biographies about her, they say she started getting counseling anywhere between two and four years old, which as a psychotherapist myself for a living, it's very bizarre. I've never seen a two to four-year-old in regular psychotherapy like she was. But nonetheless, the ages of about three to eight years old are the most vulnerable ages for the brain. And so when you experience trauma between three and eight years old, there's the best chance for splitting the mind, you know, for causing what they call split personality and or dissociative identity disorder. It used to be called multiple personality disorder or split personality disorder. Now it's called dissociative identity disorder. So she says that she's going to this regular psychotherapy from somewhere between two and four years old onwards throughout her life. And she ended up telling her biological father that her therapists were having sex with her regularly. And she said this at 13 years old. And at 13 years old, she identified all these very exotic psychoactive drugs. And these psychoactive drugs can be seen in the CIA documents that they use to help with hypnosis. And so it's obvious that they were doing things to her to cause probably dissociative identity disorder in terms of the regular trauma and using the drugs, which helps with controlling her mind. And so basically her dad, her biological dad, wasn't married to her mother. Her mother was an adopted daughter of a super wealthy family who had investments in uranium mines, who had investments in Bosch and Lom, had major, you know, stock in Bosch and Lom and uranium mines, and who also said that their wealthy adopted father had sexually abused her growing up, the mother of Courtney Love. So these wealthy parents, the Reese's, come in and they buy off the lawyer for Hank Harrison, you know, Courtney Love's biological father. They buy off his lawyer, he says, he loses his case for custody when Courtney's about five or six years old. And he said Courtney Love was scared to death to go back to her mother's home, and he didn't know why. But he loses custody of her. He doesn't see her for years. But at 13 years old, she sends letters to Hank Harrison to get herself out of a juvenile detention facility. And he gets her out of there because Courtney Love's mother apparently given up on her in some way or for some reason. But you know, he gets her out of there and he finds that she has this monstrous addiction and she's also at an early age at 13 or 14 years old she's starting to prostitute herself for her addiction and by 15 she's leaving needles all over his basement floor and his next wife said i can't take her leaving heroin needles all over our basement she can't stay here if she keeps doing this so he, he had to kick her out if she didn't stop using heroin and she wouldn't stop meanwhile she was working at strip clubs for the Japanese mafia. They were actually taking her to other countries. And these are in standard biographies of her. They say this. And she said she was part of the white slave trade in these Asian countries. And she was involved in live sex shows and all kinds of things. 
And it was obviously she was a prostitute at a very early age. She even admits it in letters to her boyfriend that one of her biographers got a hold of by talking to that boyfriend and getting a copy of the letters where she said, I prostitute myself to get airfare to get back to you. And so she's working as a prostitute in early age. She's a full-fledged major league addict. By 17 years old, she's visiting her father in Dublin, Ireland. And she brings over a thousand hits of acid with her to Dublin, Ireland. And a guy named Stephen O'Leary befriended Hank Harrison when he was in Dublin. And Hank Harrison didn't really know who he was. He just thought he was a Grateful Dead fan because Hank Harrison was the first manager for the Grateful Dead for six months and had written a book about them. And so here was this guy, Stephen O'Leary, befriending him and then befriending his daughter and then having sex with his daughter. She just turned 17 years old. And so then Stephen O'Leary takes Courtney Love over to England and over to the music scenes in England. And she proceeds to distribute the LSD all over there, just like Robert Lashbrook did, in, as I said, in 1965. And so she's got access to major drugs, distributes it for free. She's messing with these different bands, helping break up the Pogues temporarily. And messing with other bands that they came to hate her. And then she does the same thing with loads of different drugs, pain pills, opiate pain pills, and all different kinds of other drugs, along with LSD, all over the music scenes throughout the United States in her teen years. And she has unlimited amounts of money, unlimited access to all these MKUltra drugs, and is distributing them all over these left-wing music scenes all over the United States, Portland, Los Angeles. And she ends up marrying the top punk rocker in Los Angeles. And he thought he was marrying this punk feminist. And he says, it turns out she was like a right-wing Phyllis Diller. She would say she slept with army generals in Alaska. And they told her why all these wars were good for us. And we shouldn't question all America's perpetual wars. And so he couldn't take it. She would have thugs come and beat him up when he didn't do everything she told him to do. And he just finally got away from her, you know, and divorced and got away from her. And then she goes to the Seattle music scene and latches on to the top, you know, rising punk musician there, Kurt Cobain. This is just as Nevermind was like soaring to the top of the charts that she got herself involved with Kurt, started dating him and got pregnant with him really fast. There was a trick in the book. But within a couple of years, he just couldn't take it anymore with her, and he was divorcing her. And he asked their lawyer, Rosemary Carroll, to write up divorce documents. And so basically, Courtney Love had hired a private detective to pretend to look for Kurt Cobain. And that private detective ended up finding all this evidence and recorded tons of phone calls with Rosemary Carroll when Rosemary Carroll said that you know, Kurt Cobain was divorcing Courtney Love at that time. and she thought that Courtney Love had something to do with Kurt Cobain's murder, that was actually a murder and that he wasn't suicidal. And he's got a lot of this on tape. And the only thing about Tom Grant, that detective, who was a former police deputy and murder investigator, Tom Grant couldn't believe any other angle but that Courtney Love was involved in the murder setup for money. And he couldn't believe anything beyond that. But when he brought all his evidence to the Seattle Police Department, and then to the uh, Los Angeles Police Department, they all rejected the evidence and didn't do anything about it. And, you know, there's obviously it should have gone to the FBI because the guy named Eldon Hoke said on film 
the film Kurt and Courtney for Nick Broomfield. And he said on film that basically Courtney Love came from Seattle, Los Angeles, offered me 50 grand to shoot Kurt Cobain and said she showed where to do it and how to do it and when and all that stuff. But when she came back to give him the money to actually pull it off, he was on tour. And so he said she found someone else to do it. And he named the name to some journalists. And he also started the name, name one film, Alan Hoke. But he ends up dying three days after that filming of him saying that. Meanwhile, he had said, Alan Hoke, I'm sorry, Alan, his last name's different than Hoke, but Eldon Hoke took polygraph tests saying that Courtney Love offered him this money to kill Kurt Cobain and passed with flying colors. He took several polygraph tests. And so he was a legitimate witness to all this. And meanwhile, the FBI was sent all kinds of letters saying, please investigate this. And they should have. It was within their jurisdiction. They pretended like it wasn't, but they crossed state lines to do this. And so I wrote an article about this for Covert Action Quarterly. So this is just some of the massive evidence that Courtney Love played a part in the murder. But the bigger picture is that Kurt Cobain was a radical leftist. He was very anti-war. He even said he meant to put all these kinds of anarchist essays on the cover of Nevermind, but he thought he'd wait till they become more famous when people might take it more seriously. And so, you know, he was anti-war, he was anti-racism, and they wanted to manipulate him to promote heroin, which they did, which it worked. The heroin use rose every year through the 90s with Kurt Cobain as people's role models. And meanwhile, Kurt Cobain was sober when he died. His blood toxicology the month before his death, when he had that incidental overdose, which was likely Courtney Love trying to kill him right then with her drugs, her rohypnol, which is a roofies. And his blood was completely clean of all drugs. And anyone who knows anyone who's got a heroin problem, you got to use every day. You can't just get off it, you know, all of a sudden you not have a problem. So he was not a heroin addict at that time. And he said that in his interviews, he found an answer to his stomach problem and he was clean and sober at the time he died. Right. Yeah. Obviously, Courtney Love had her own motivation, but then the intelligence operations motivation was that he found a drug to stop his stomach pain, which you show in the film. There's an interview where he says, no, I'm not taking any of that stuff. This drug has really helped me. And he was also planning to end Nirvana, which Dave Grohl has admitted was going to happen. And another member of the band admitted was going to happen. So it was a, a synergy of motivations, I guess, to end the operation when it ended, right? Yeah, I mean, ending Nirvana was, had got these music execs trying to do an intervention just to try and get him to not end Nirvana. But the real control was U.S. intelligence trying to control him and then trying to do away with him because he was going to threatening to promote sobriety for sure. Mm -hmm. Man, it's just so interesting to see this template hit time and time again. Courtney Love's background, sprinkling LSD all over the music scene. It's like... Uh, yeah, so the key thing, though, I left out is the fact that Stephen O'Leary on his deathbed admitted that he was working for U.S. intelligence when he brought Courtney Love throughout England to spread LSD. And so he, he wrote a letter to Hank Harrison and Hank Harrison started to publish it in his book. And he sent me, a, he sent a lot of people actually a copy of his original book about Courtney Love. I think it was called Love and Death or maybe it was a different name. Love Kills, I think he called it. And then when that book actually came out in hard copy form, 
he took that letter out, but I still have the original copy of the book with that letter. And I got copies of that letter in my film, Drugs and Weapons Against Us. And mm-hmm. so Stephen O'Leary was regularly visiting the U.S. Embassy, giving reports back. Yeah, so we don't even really have to speculate that much because in a lot of these cases, someone does end up saying, hey, you know, I was an intelligence asset. Sorry about all that mess. And this is a pretty perfect pace for what I had planned because Tupac is where you've probably done the deepest amount of research. And with the last 10 minutes of the first hour, I want to at least hit the major points of his story. But this interview really came to be because I heard this story about a new search warrant issued for Tupac's murder. And I thought actually going into all that would probably make a good episode. And man, did I learn just so much from your work. Can you give us a bit of an overview of Tupac's parents, the Black Panthers, and this similar operation to disrupt organized political activism with drugs and intelligence infiltration? Yeah. So Tupac's mother, Fania Shakur, was a one-time leader of the Harlem Black Panthers. Amazing woman who was credited for getting the Black Panther 21 off in court. So basically, I show the evidence that U.S. intelligence used undercover agents to get her addicted to crack as she continued to do activism against the FBI's counterintelligence program and against you know, other U.S. intelligence programs. So that really sidelined her life for a while while Tupac was growing up impoverished because the FBI was also visiting Afeni Shakur's employers and not letting her get jobs or getting her fired. And then she you know, developed that crack problem. Tupac's stepfather, Matulu Shakur, had pioneered the use of acupuncture for acupuncture detox for drug addictions in Lincoln Detox in the Bronx and was spreading it around the country. So he had some amazing parents. And at 17 years old, he ends up being elected head of the New African Panthers, which was trying to replicate the Black Panthers and was active in eight to 10 cities around the country. So Tupac was already a national Black leader before he became a rapper. Then he he tours with Digital Underground, and then he comes out with his first solo album. And it's a very political album. And his song Trapped got its MTV worldwide release. And within several days of that, Oakland police pretend to stop him for jaywalking. They choke him unconscious and pound his head against the curb. And I show the evidence, I argue that other people had died in police custody through those actions. And this was the first attempt on Tupac's life. And then other police-connected attempts on Tupac's life included at the Marin City Fest, when Tupac's invited for the 50th anniversary of the Marin City Fest, Tupac's an honorary guest, and strangers attack Tupac for no reason. Police watch passively and don't do anything about it. These same strangers have a gun and shoot at Tupac, and he runs, and police only arrest anyone after Tupac crawls under a police car, and these strangers were trying to beat him to death and gotten a crowd to mess with a police car. And so I show the evidence how that was another attempt on Tupac's life. And so Tupac. His agenda was he was only pretending to be a gangster in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them to spread a gang peace truce and turn them into activism. And that was a major threat to the U.S. intelligence drug traffickers because their low-level dealers were these gangs. And so when you took all these gang members off the street and stopped them from drug dealing and you get this gang peace truce movement and turn on to activism, 
spreading around the country and getting all these gangs stopping dealing drugs, such as it spread to the New York Latin Kings, the largest gang in New York, that was 3,000 strong and had vowed to stop dealing drugs, as documented by some New York professors. You see that's affecting the CIA drug traffickers' money, along with the money launderers' money. The banks are laundering tons of money, according to the United Nations report on money laundering through banks and stock market portfolios. And it gets into the tune of billions of dollars being threatened by Tupac and his Black Panther extended families' activism around this issue. And so this is some of what he was doing behind the scenes for why there would be these attempts on his life. And so then you get to Atlanta where he's doing a concert. And so some reportedly off-duty cops were beating on someone. Tupac said, what's going on? They went over to his car, according to both white and black eyewitnesses, took a gun that they had stolen from a police evidence locker, smashed the car window Tupac was in and shot at him. And Tupac nearly rolled out the back, grabbed the security guard's gun and shot back in self-defense in Atlanta. And so Tupac, the trial never went forward completely because it was a botched assassination attempt, at least, you know, number three or so. And so this is the way things were going for Tupac. And finally, they set him up on this sexual abuse charge where this woman in court, I have the court documents saying she kissed his penis on a dance floor and had consensual sex with him that night. And then he gets convicted only of touching her butt against her will after what the jury found was consensual sex, which is absolutely bizarre, and gets one and a half to four and a half years in a maximum security prison for that, you know, which again is absolutely bizarre. And so they did that to mess his mind up in prison. Meanwhile, just before that verdict came out, there was another attempt on his life where they shot him once to get him down the ground, where he was face down the ground, then shot him twice in the skull, which is an execution tactic of US intelligence. And there's two bullets miraculously barely missed his brain, according to the doctor's affidavit on the bullets going through one side of the back of the skull and out the front of the skull, but barely missing his brain. And so, again, another assassination attempt. Police were monitoring him at that time. The same police that showed up the sexual assault charge were showed up immediately at that charge on the opposite side of New York City. And then he's in prison. Death Row gets him out of prison. Death Row is filled with dozens and dozens of police officers at all levels of their company. Death Row Records. And an honest cop, Detective Russell Poole, says, you know, he asked his superiors, what are they doing in this company? And his superior said, you can call them troubleshooters or covert agents. And so they thought that he would keep a closed mouth on this and that he would be part of it all, being white and thinking he would join this racist agenda. But he didn't. He blew the whistle on that and came out with it. Now, he didn't know why it was all going on. They didn't tell him the full spectrum of it all. He didn't know how activist Tupac really was and all that, but he came out with it. He was forced to leave his investigation of the Biggie Smalls murder. He was the official investigator on the Biggie Smalls murder. Biggie Smalls was collateral damage made to look like East Coast versus West Coast rap war, just as diversion for what was really happening, which was Death Row Records was trafficking drugs, trafficking guns, trying to end the Bloods versus Crips peace truce, and then setting up Tupac for assassination. And once they were successful in that, Death Row basically was done what, what it needed to do. Suge Knight went to jail. Suge Knight was low-level intelligence. Dave Kenner was much higher in the totem pole, being the white real owner of Death Row Records. 
and Reggie Wright was hired on the totem pole, being the head of security, a police officer who's head of security of these dozens of police officers in death row. And Reggie Wright's father, Reggie Wright Sr., was head of the gang division in Compton, where the first peace truce between the Bloods and Crips happened. And so this is the way it all played out and worked out. And here's all that evidence. Now, police come in and say they're searching this guy in Keith Keefe D. Davis's home. That stems from a police officer who came in five to 10 years after Russell Poole's investigation. And Russell Poole said, Greg Kading was a disgraced cop who was found to be openly lying in court. He was kicked off the force when he was caught lying in court. But then he is brought out of retirement to be a disinformation agent, basically, to make up this whole story about how the Crips killed Tupac. And based on the original setup of Tupac's murder, which was getting a nephew of this Crip member, this guy named Orlando Anderson, who got a lot of money. According to Nick Broomfield, he received a lot of money to take a beating for a setup of a scuffle in the MGM hotel after the Mike Tyson fight. So people convinced Tupac to be part of this little scuffle with this guy, Orlando Anderson. After that, Anderson didn't do anything. But an hour or two later, there's a drive-by shooting that kills Tupac in Las Vegas. Now, Keefe D says that it was him and his nephew, Orlando Anderson, that carried out the murder. But Greg Kading also says that Biggie Smalls brought a million dollars from Puffy, P. Diddy, to Las Vegas. Somehow gave it to Keefe D to give to Orlando Anderson to kill Tupac. Now, that's just ridiculous. Nobody saw 350-pound top-selling rapper Biggie Smalls in Las Vegas that night. And nobody. And there's tapes of Biggie Smalls recording in New Jersey at the night of the Mike Tyson fight where Tupac was assassinated, you know? And so it's just an absurd story that Greg Kading came out with in a book and film. And Detective Kading, and, you know, all these TV series try to present Detective Greg Kading as something legitimate, which he wasn't at all. He's a disinformation agent. His story's absurd. His book's absurd. Russell Poole said that Greg Kading never asked him anything before Russell Poole was murdered in a police department trying to give new evidence on who really shot Tupac. And this is the way it all really went down. And now they're reviving it because nobody's really buying. Well, at least a smaller and smaller percentage of people are buying Greg Kading's ridiculous story or that. And basically, you know, Keefe D was offered full leniency from facing decades in prison on a drug charge in order just to say whatever he would say. And he said what they told him to say, which is that, yes, I carried out Tupac's murder with my now dead nephew because there's the cover-up of killing Orlando Anderson two years after Tupac's killing, too. And so he gets let off of decades in prison just to say what they want him to say, and they got that on tape, and they say that that's great evidence of who really killed Tupac. So they're just trying to revive that, you know, that bogus story. Right. Yes, a lot of details in this one, and that's a pretty good summary. I wanted to emphasize a few parts of the story for people. So. Matulu Shakur, who you mentioned had established this acupuncture protocol for addiction, this is something we've seen time and time again. People with alternative health cures are often, let's say, neutralized in one way or another. But he was basically made a patsy for this robbery of Brinks trucks. You go into the details of that. He basically was put in jail on a false charge. 
let's just say, for many, many years. And it was when he was in jail that him and Tupac concocted the gangster rap persona to gain influence and then, as you noted, convert the gang culture to Black Panther activism, uplifting their community and these sorts of things. And when Matulu was in jail, this is when Tupac's mother had a really difficult time raising two kids and they inserted Kenneth Legs Saunders into her life who got her hooked on crack and Legs worked for Nikki Barnes, who police claimed was Harlem's biggest drug dealer, nicknamed Mr. Untouchable. He was a successor to Frank Matthews, one of the first New York drug kingpins who was black. Nine people supplying drugs to Matthews had their drug importation charges dropped due to their CIA involvement. So this is another example of inserting an asset into the life of an activist. And basically, they broke up the family, which was really the start of what caused this problem for the Shakur family. And I've heard some Tupac music back in the day from friends who were really into him. And it was incredibly violent. And I didn't really see this whole side of Tupac being an elevator or anything like that. But you note in the book and film that a lot of that music came out when he had signed with Death Row Records. They crafted that image and kind of amplified the negativity in all that. And he signed with Death Row when he was in prison. So they do all this psychological torture to him when he's in prison. And before they let him out, they make him sign with Death Row Records, which is a new set of handlers for the whole thing. And it really is just a wild story. And those are some of the added details that I found interesting. And as you said, he wanted to broker peace deals between the gangs. And he had a gang code of conduct he was promoting, like this Ten Commandments for Gang Life, which was kind of the start of twisting the violence away from, you know, their everyday life and instead going into an activist and uplifting kind of direction. And that's uh, no small thing. In the film, you play a great clip from Catherine Austin Fitz, who talks about these inner city street gangs and just how much money they were funneling up. She said street dealers could make about a hundred grand a year for each person for a supplier who then laundered through a network of establishments that dealt in cash, like banks and restaurants. And they were using illiterate teenagers to generate two to three million in stock value for major corporations, getting these gangs out of drug dealing, as you say, would cost billions. This is how to make that connection between low-level street drug dealing and billions of dollars for the establishment. And you also note that George Bush Sr. sort of got involved here and organized resources to stop the gang truce movement. And of course, Tupac was a big part of that. And so I also didn't realize that Tupac's father actually got out of prison in 2022 and then died July 6th, 2023, this year. And the new search warrant in Tupac's death was issued July 18th, just a few days later after Matulu Shakur's death. That's oddly coincidental. Are there other aspects to this story in that regard, in this new phase that should be talked about? Yeah, it's just very sad. They would only let Matulu out of jail when he was dying of cancer and just really not well off, really invalid status. It's really, it was very sad. 
getting out cancer perked him up a bit. And he lived longer than they expected. But he was pushing the idea also that U.S. intelligence, of course, assassinated his son, Tupac. And I've talked to his biological son, Mopreem Shakur, Tupac's stepbrother, who was very close with. And, you know, he thinks that it was clearly a U.S. intelligence operation that orchestrated the murder of his brother, Tupac. And it's just very sad that he only got to see his biological father for a certain amount of months before he passed. And of course, Matulu was always countering the bogus story of Detective Kading and others. And so it is interesting that, yeah, after he wasn't there to counter that story, then they're pushing that story again and harder that Detective Kading and U.S. intelligence concocted about that this was all just a crypt gang murder tied into with money being given from P. Diddy and Biggie. It's, you know, it's just an absurd story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all comes full circle. It's some kind of uh, cleanup operation, I guess, to support the shaky narrative that they had already laid out. And right. But great details you gave. Thanks for the great details you added to all that that I said, Greg. <laughs> sure, sure. I just I do what I can to uh, be co-pilot on these things. And just to touch on your film Shots, which is really great. You go over the history of eugenics, and then you talk about the usage of war as a eugenics campaign to wipe out the poors. Go send all the poors who can't afford to get their life together without the money for you know signing up for the military. Get them on the front lines, wipe out a whole bunch of them, and obviously that serves a need for the elite. And you also note that not only do they send soldiers to war, they test vaccines on them. So if you ever were curious if vaccines from the very start were an altruistic technology, it doesn't seem like they were because they've always been tested on people who didn't have much choice and funded by card-carrying eugenicists. And I just wanted to not only touch a little bit more on the documentary to let people know about it before we go, but I was also curious what you think about the Mexican cartels and fentanyl, which is a huge problem right now, but some frame it as China weaponizing the cartels against America. And some even go further to say that it's revenge for the opium wars. I don't know if it's necessarily revenge, but it's certainly a very similar template, wouldn't you say? I think that the opium wars against the population is so old and so constructed by the American oligarchs and continued by the American oligarchs that I wouldn't go to a foreign country and say they're the ones doing it. America has controlled its borders and allowed in drug traffickers that their own people are drug trafficking and the CIA has been called drug trafficking. And that was when 60 Minutes, when 60 Minutes allowed more information on there. As I say, the J.P. Morgan ships were caught in Philadelphia with a ton of cocaine. They control what's coming in and out, and they control what's coming in the communities. And I'm sure that it's part of the eugenics that when they're putting fentanyl in so many different drugs. You know, a client of mine said his cousin was smoking weed, and someone had put fentanyl in it, and he was all of a sudden frothing at the mouth and died. And so they're even putting in weed. Mm. So it's just absurd what's going on with that. And it's the same way with spice. It's the same way with a number of different drugs. And when you look back and you research all these different drugs, you find that they were started 
as part of the drugs tested by MKUltra. You know, MKUltra continues today. The best evidence says they're just using different names. Whistleblowers around FBI have said they continued the counterintelligence program called COINTELPRO. They just use different names for it. And it's mm-hmm. obvious that same thing's been done with MKUltra. So I really think that it's still the oligarchs in U.S. intelligence are probably, most probably behind fentanyl. Right. It's really hard to unpack because there are many layers and there's a lot of deception and games within games. But I do think you're right. The framing of this fentanyl thing as an attack from China, well, they couldn't do it if you controlled the border. If you didn't have a very porous border, they really wouldn't be able to have the success that they're having. So that's an element that the U.S. controls. And they say that fentanyl is only made in Chinese labs. But who are the major pharmaceutical companies that own the labs? They're the same old eugenicists, big pharma corporations, as far as I know. So that's another element that should make people think. But didn't we just experience COVID, which came from the Wuhan lab, which Trump called the China virus? But who ran Event 201? Who are the people who've really gamed out a coronavirus pandemic? It's Fauci, it's Gates, it's these guys. So yeah, I think these are points that anyone should consider before they really come to any strong conclusion. Yeah, Fauci was indirectly funding the Wuhan lab. I show it in my film how they were funding the research, the gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab, and it was very dangerous research, you know, to make pathogens more lethal against humans. Yeah, and the quote from Luc Montagnier is probably one of the most damning in the film, but I recommend everybody see it, even if it's a lot of review for people. Two and a half hours, you're going to learn a few things you didn't know before, even if you're familiar with Pierre Corey and Peter McCullough and all that stuff. There's still a lot in there. With joke music and joke songs and jokes throughout, I think it's more fun watch than a regular documentary. Amen. Wow. Well, this has been really great. I would recommend your work to anyone. We barely scratched the surface of how deep your research goes. Give people the links they might want and let us know about what you're working on next. You mentioned another documentary. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'm going to keep quiet about the new documentary until it's out. I'm sorry to say, just because I'd love to talk to you again about that documentary when it comes out. Greg, that'd be great if you don't mind. But you can go to johnpotash, J-O-H-N-P-O-T-A-S-H.com for just all the, you know, these different works of mine. It's also called drugsisweapons.com. So it's got a few different names for one website. And, you know, watch the trailers to see if you might want to watch the full film or check out some excerpts about the books. And it was great talking with you about it all, Greg. I hope we get the word out on all these different important issues to help people come from a more empowered, more educated place for how to approach these issues. Heck yeah. I think your work is a real service to humanity, and it was an honor to present some of this to the audience. So keep it up and keep fighting the good fight and take care. Thanks a lot, Greg. Good talking with you. Take care now. You as well. Good luck with everything. Woo, Lordy. Man, did I love this one. John has done incredible research and he knows it well. In fact, if I had read this before I did the top 10 conspiracy books 
with Gordon on Rune Soup, I think I would have put this in there. I was pretty uninformed on the massive amounts of drug money in the opium-funded Ivy League, as well as several other threads that I learned about from his books and films. John really should be more well-known in this conspiracy subculture, but if you heard the Plus show, maybe it's better not to be, right? I tweeted a few weeks ago that I had just gotten off an interview that left me depressed, and this was it for the people who have asked with every new show to come out since then. But the control just seems so absolute. I came away feeling a bit defeated in the macro scope and on a personal level. Of course, I'm incredibly fortunate to have this as a career. No morning alarms, no shitty bosses, great pay. But I worry about the screws tightening on people like me. I worry about the longevity of it and the security of my young family. So often, people lose their lives to this sort of cause, and the audiences tend to just move on to the next researcher or simple stoner podcast host. Though I guess what really can they do? But when I see these sort of nitpicky, shitty criticisms that me and some of my really great colleagues get, it's extra frustrating because this sort of material comes with enough stress and risk as it is. I'm not trying to pull a poor me victim card. I'm just saying, for those who heard the full two hours, I think you can understand why I would come off of this one in a pretty down mood for the next day or so. We make our choices in life, and we do the best we can. But when you break down some of these deaths of important cultural figures and musical artists and researchers like Dave McGowan, and you look around at the current state of culture, music, and the artists that get propped up on the pedestal, it's kind of over, right? They beat us, and so many people didn't even know there was a fight going on. Now every artist and celebrity is just paraded through vote montages, telling everyone to get the jab or you're not allowed to see them perform. And there's almost nobody with any serious fan base that is actively anti-war. The whole world just feels captured. And while it's good to be informed, and I consider this an amazing interview with someone who has done top-tier work, it can also make a person feel a bit sad. Ignorance is bliss, as they say. But honestly, I am so happy with this as an interview. I advise anyone to read his books or watch the films that are based on the books. So many more pieces to the big puzzle than we could fit in today. Much respect to John, and I hope he gets a lot of good feedback because he deserves to be celebrated. And a big thanks to Ron Patton for making me aware. I remember in the early days, I was working a farmer's market with Ron where we were trying to sell conspiracies and conspiracy books. That was his half of the booth. And John's book, Drugs as a Weapon Against Us, was always featured prominently. It was clear Ron held it in high regard, and it was phone book thick. So it always stuck out in my mind, and it just took me so long to get to it. And I don't know if I would have been as receptive or open-minded in my younger years as I am now, 
when it comes to, as the title says, the multiple multifaceted ways drugs have been used against us, regardless of anyone's personal positive experiences. Both can exist. But I also wanted to mention just a couple other musicians' stories that I had in my outline, because if I don't, then it will just sit in a drawer somewhere until I auction it off eventually. But Janis Joplin, she's another one. Her fiancé told a previous girlfriend that he worked for the FBI. He got Janice hooked on amphetamines. And then they had to call off the wedding when Janice learned that he was already married. She then went further and got addicted to heroin. And then she died of an unusually pure dose. So again, seems like maybe funny business. Definitely funny business with the fiancé there. But then as I was trying to do more research on musical artist deaths in the last few years that wouldn't be in John's book. I saw this about Takeoff. So I don't know much about Takeoff or his death. And I mean, I know the group he was in, Migos, was pretty damn popular. But I found this just an odd coincidence. But his real last name was Ball, B-A-L-L. Phonetically, that sounds like something else, I'm aware. But he was also shot outside of a private party in a bowling alley. And then I read an article that stated, in a statement, Takeoff's record label said that he was killed by a stray bullet. And Houston police chief Troy Finner said that he did not believe Takeoff to be the intended target. But later, it says, on November 1st, 2022, following a private party at 810 Billiards and Bowling, in the Green Street commercial development part of Houston, Texas, Ball was shot multiple times in the head and torso, which sounds like a little bit more than a stray bullet. Again, I don't really know anything about Takeoff or Migos or anything he might have said that was a political or activist type of statement, but some of these industry kills could be over business, over learning too much or not falling in line or rituals or any number of things. But I thought those sketchy details were worth adding to the stack. And those eerie esoteric coincidences are things I always like to point out to. But that's the show. You guys know the deal. Become a plus member for the full two hour version of all the ongoing THC episodes. Click the link right at the top of your show notes or go through the Patreon page if you want to hear THC Plus on Spotify. In this plus show, we talked about Dave McGowan and the circumstances around his death. We talked about MDMA and the Wu Tang Clan the current state of music and musical artists, therapy as intelligence gathering, the Human Ecology Fund compared to the modern-day MAPS organization, MKUltra 2.0, the killing of anti-war artists, Nipsey Hussle, and several other things. I give you the first hour for free just to prove I can make a show that you like and is worth your time and money, and then you do what you do. <laughs> And let's see what THC fans have put on the meetup calendar at HiresideMeetups.com before we go. We got September 29th, Oakland, California. September 30th, Auckland. 
New Zealand. September 30th, Columbia, Missouri, mild stomping grounds in conjunction with the No Agenda crew. October 1st, a PlayStation virtual meetup. That's an easy one. I might even join that. And then we'll throw in October 14th because we got three. Edgewater, Colorado, Rappingers Falls, New York, and Huntington, Indiana. If you hear about an event near you, definitely go. You're going to love it. You're going to meet new friends of a like mind over your mutual love of a weird podcast that is usually a solo experience, and you will have people in your network for the next crisis. And if you didn't hear about an event near you, just hop on the calendar and make one. It's free and it's easy. Hiresidemeetups.com. I keep the site active just so people can use it to feel more joy and more security. But there it is. People meeting people. Big thanks again to John. Let him know. It really was a serious pleasure. I'm very fortunate to have such high-level researchers that want to do interviews with me. But don't let it get you down. Find happiness when you can, where you can, because I think it's only going to be a little bit harder going forward. But I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, musical artist assassins, opium trafficking elite, and CIA culture controllers. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon round the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts. All along thought they were rooting for the home team as they're sent to the game and torn apart. We twist this tourniquet upon the pipeline that he carries on